0: Well, in case you just couldn't fit in your schedule, the 5 hour plus ordeal, there was the royal wedding in 60 seconds for you this morning. How many guys actually did take time? You watched the whole thing. We had a couple of ladies in the last one. I don't think we had any men that took 5 hours to watch that. If you did, talk to me afterwards. Just kidding. Uh, Take your Bibles out this morning and turn to the book of Revelation as we continue our series, The Return of the King, A Journey Through Revelation. If you're a guest today, uh, you are in the middle of actually kind of toward the end of our study through the book of Revelation, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are up to Revelation chapter 19 uh, today. The title is A Marriage Made in Heaven. Well, just in case uh, any of you young ladies that are dreaming about your wedding day someday, if you watch the royal wedding and you're planning to have that type of wedding, uh, you need to have your dad start saving a lot of money now and preparations, because I did a little study this week, here's what I found out about the royal wedding, uh, first of all you need to have 2,000 invitations, there were 2,000 guests at the royal wedding, and then you need to prepare for your television audience, 3 billion people uh, worldwide watched the royal wedding recently, uh, the cost was 70 million dollars for the royal wedding, 70 million dollars, some of you ladies are like, see that makes our scene really cheap now. Uh, Thirty-three million dollars was spent on security alone. One million dollars on the flowers. And the cake? Hundred thousand dollar wedding cake. And that, if you break that down with the two thousand guests, that was fifty dollars a slice. That must have been some good wedding cake. Many people call that the wedding of the century. Well today, if that was the wedding of the century, what we're going to be studying in Revelation 19 is the wedding or marriage of all eternity. I mean this is the biggest one that is ever going to take place. Um, Today we're going to see the scene shift from the earth and what's been going on during the seven years of tribulation after the rapture of the church. In chapter 6 through 18 we've been looking at all these judgments that take place on the earth and now today in chapter 19 the scene shifts to heaven. Whew, that's nice. It's a nice breather from the judgments on earth. And so we're going to be looking at what's going to happen in heaven right here at the end of the seven years of tribulation. As I told you, the title is A Marriage Made in Heaven. Maybe that's a phrase you've heard before. Oh, they have a marriage made in heaven. You know, maybe, hopefully you could say that about your marriage. A marriage made in heaven. Um, I was mentioning this to the uh, first service people that were here. Um, Shelly and I. Um, are very grateful and privileged, I believe, and blessed that both of us uh, grew up in a home that the marriages lasted a long time. Uh, My father passed away about 10 years ago, but before he passed away, uh, my mom and dad celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And it was an incredible event and I remember my mom was, my dad's health was pretty bad the last several years and said, boy, I just, I just hope that he lives long enough for us to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. And then uh, Shelly's parents are here this morning, Dr. and Mrs. Randall, and they are getting ready to celebrate their 40th, 49th wedding anniversary in just a week or so. We're, July 6th, July 6th, 49 years. So let's congratulate them this morning. I guess we'll call that a marriage made in heaven, mom, that you put up with him that long, so the grace of God. But today we're going to look at a marriage made in heaven that involves, if you're a Christian, every single one of us, maybe you didn't realize that, if you're a believer today, you're going to be a part of a marriage in heaven that's the marriage of all eternity for Christians. And you know, a lot of times people want to know, and they ask this question, they ask me, you know, as a Christian, when we get to heaven, what are we going to do? for all eternity. I mean, are we going to get to go fishing? Are we going to get to go golfing? Are we going to go shopping? What I mean, what are we going to do in heaven forever? Well today we're going to get a glimpse of at least the first seven years of what's going on in heaven while tribulation is taking place on earth. It's a much better scene in heaven that we're going to be a part of. And we're going to see two things that are going to happen in heaven and we're going to call them heavenly worship and a heavenly wedding in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, uh, today in our study. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then dive into what God has for us this morning in His Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You that You gave this vision through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some 2,000 years ago. And He recorded these words in the pages of Scripture, so that we could study and we could know about these end-time events that are... We're very curious about and very interesting to us and lord the most importantly the part that we're going to have in this In the return of the king and the return of your son jesus christ and lord that uh, there's going to be a wedding That we need to be prepared for and the part that we're going to have in that and the worship And I pray today would be an encouragement to us as believers um, And and that we get excited about this event and, and what you have prepared for us And lord if there's anyone here today that's never receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray that today would be the day that they would make that decision, that they would become engaged to Jesus Christ and and with Him being their groom, and that they would look forward to Him returning for them, and that they would know they have a home in heaven, and they're going to be a part of this scene we're going to look at today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation 19, two things that are going to happen when we get to heaven. First of all, heavenly worship, chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. John says, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, there's the scene, saying, what's the next word, church? Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. I mean, that's the scene in heaven. Now, John, when he says, after these things, we should answer the question, after what things? Well, after the things we've just been studying in chapter 17 and 18, the last two weeks, those of you that were here, we have seen in chapter 17 the fall of the Babylonian empire, of the Antichrist, that demonic system, the the one world religion where he's trying to get the world to worship him, that has fallen, and then in chapter 18 last week we saw the fall of commercial Babylon and economic and political Babylon I mean everything that the Antichrist has been in charge of is now fallen God is judging it, and now the scene, scene shifts to heaven, and we're seeing the people of God rejoicing over what has just t- taken place. And if you remember last week in chapter 18, verse 20, there was this command given. You can see it right here in chapter 18, verse 20: Rejoice over her, and that's Babylon who's fallen. O heaven! And you holy apostles, prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And so a command uh, for heaven to worship and celebrate is given. And now today in chapter 19, we see the obedience to that command. We see the response as heaven erupts in this just huge victorious celebration of worship and praise for everything that God has done, where he's made all the wrongs right. And to get the context of this as we've looked through this study We believe prophetically the next event on God's time calendar is the rapture of the church, and as soon as the church is raptured, it's going to begin seven years of tribulation where God's judgment is poured out, and and we've talked about that, and then at the end of those seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Christ, which is exactly what we're going to look at next week, which is is what we've been working towards in this whole study. So right here, we're at the, the end of the seven years of tribulation, right before the second coming of Christ, right before the battle of Armageddon, and right after the fall of babylon so if that makes sense say yes we caught up on the context and this is what's happening in heaven in preparation of the return of the king and in revelation 19 the first 10 verses there are four hallelujahs of praise and worship that we read about there's one in verse 1 in verse 3 verse 4 and verse 6 now Alleluia. now i asked the first service now this is the second service you guys are much smarter and wiser than the first service right and you know your Bible so much better than they do. Help me out. They, they didn't know what hallelujah meant. And I was shocked. Does, does anybody know what does hallelujah mean? Praise the, praise the Lord. See, give yourselves a hand. You guys are so... They were like, oh, well, I don't know, honey, what is that? You know, they, they, nobody had a clue. I could, or they, they didn't want to say, I guess, you know. They didn't want to be wrong. It means praise the Lord. Um, you may be more familiar with the word hallelujah. Sometimes it's hallelujah, sometimes it's hallelujah. It's the same word, it means the same thing. It means praise God, praise the Lord. Um, allelujah is in the New Testament, which is in the Greek, and so it's the Greek word allelujah, which is the form of the Hebrew word hallelujah, which you read about a lot, especially in the book of Psalms, the, you know, the praise and worship book of the Bible. But here's what's interesting that you might not know. We hear that word all the time. This is the first time in the New Testament, and the only time, that we find the words Alleluia, praise the Lord, in the New Testament. You've got to get all the way to the book of Revelation, to chapter 19, and you start seeing this praise and worship using the word Alleluia, praise the Lord. Now here's what's really cool. This probably most of you didn't know, probably a few of you might. How many of you guys have heard of Handel's Messiah? Awesome, awesome uh, composition. It was written by uh, George Frederick Handel back in 1741, the summer of 1741. He wrote it in preparation for the next year, 1742's Easter season. And for many years it was performed during Easter season, but now today we know it is a little more popular in the Christmas season. The Hallelujah Chorus, and you you guys have heard that. You, You know where he wrote that from? He got that idea? Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. This is where the Hallelujah Chorus, Handel's Messiah, came from. Exactly what we're studying today. So next time you hear that sung, you can think about Revelation 19 and understand the context in heaven, what's going on when Handel wrote that and, and what he was talking about. And so, if you, any of you guys n- not heard of Handel's Messiah? You don't know what I'm talking about? Okay, a few of you? Okay, well, I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. Okay, and you guys are much nicer than the first service because they applauded. Oh, no, 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 don't run it, don't run it. They they applauded when I said that because see I learned a long time ago I'm a drummer I can't sing uh, sometimes with my wife I'll, I'll hear a, a new song and I'll I want to like say hey have you heard this new song she's like well which one and I'm like I try to sing it and she laughs at me and my children laugh at me and, and make fun of me and so I I, I learned I can't sing and and uh, Jake you know our worship director sometimes I'll hear a new worship song on the radio and I'll be like ooh we should sing that on Sunday and I'll go into his office and I'll say hey Jake have you heard that new worship song and he's like which one and I'll I'll Try to attempt to sing a few bars of it, and he'll kind of go. You kind of like what your dog does when they hear a weird noise, you know? And I'm like, uh, he's like, just get me a copy of it, and so. But but if you don't, have you ever heard it? Go on the internet, YouTube, you can watch it, and and uh, the Alleluia, hallelujah. Okay, see, I'm, I'm not gonna do it. Okay. But but what is all this Alleluia about in Revelation 19? I mean, what what is all this incredible worship about? So much so that all of heaven erupts. In celebration and worship and praise, and handles Messiah, this magnificent piece, uh, you know, of, of composition. What's everybody praising God about and worshiping? Well, John tells us there are four reasons for these four Allelujahs and this worship that is found, this heavenly worship. And I want to give them to you. First of all, letter A in your outline, there's the Alleluia of salvation. In verse 1, it says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor belong to our Lord God salvation now that's a word you, you hear a lot about in the bible and in church but what you may not realize is there are actually three biblical aspects to our salvation um let me give those to you uh, the three different aspects to our salvation that can sometimes be confusing because in the scriptures we sometimes just always assume it's talking about the day we accepted christ but there are other aspects to our salvation the bible talks about now the first one is the fact that we have have been saved past tense and that takes poem takes uh Uh, happens the moment we accept christ that we are forgiven of our sins we become children of god god becomes our father we have been saved if you're thankful for that say yes. yes so we have been saved but then the scripture also talks about the fact that as believers once we have been saved we are continuing to be saved in a present tense not forgiven of our sins and, 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 and working to become Christians, but the Bible says in Philippians six, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's that ongoing working of God in our life, uh, helping us to be more like him, that sanctification being set apart, and he's continuing to save us from bad decisions. And so you understand that. We have been saved. We are present tense being saved. And then the Bible talks about the fact that as believers, we will one day be saved. That's future, we will be saved, and that is usually talking about when we arrive safely in heaven. That's exactly what John is talking about here in this hallelujah he hears in Revelation 19. It's the people of God, they've arrived safely in heaven, and they are singing, hallelujah, salvation belongs to our God. We have made it safely, we have arrived, we're with God, we're with God's people, we're here forever, and man, that's a reason to rejoice and celebrate, amen? That's what they're celebrating right here, their safe arrival in heaven, something that all believers are looking forward to. So there's the Alleluia of salvation, arrival in heaven. Then there's the Alleluia of judgment, kind of the opposite of salvation, the Alleluia of judgment. Verse 2 and 3, For true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot, that's Babylon that we saw fall in chapter 17 and 18, who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged, brought justice on her. Because of the blood of his servants shed by her. And again, they said what, church? Now, do you think that's how they said it? If you all say hallelujah like that in the presence of the Lord, you know, that's going to be really embarrassing, okay? Let's try this again. And again they said? That's better. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, for her smoke rises up forever and ever. Heaven here now is worshiping over the justice that we saw happen in chapter 17 and 18. That God has brought justice on the wicked, evil, and demonic Babylon, the Antichrist, the false prophet, all of those things, and he's judging them for the way they treated God's people who wouldn't take the mark of the beast. He had them killed, and judgment has now come upon them, and they're saying, praise God that we weren't with the Antichrist, praise God we're in heaven safely, and praise God he's finally bringing justice on that evil beast, the Antichrist, and his system, and all the things that he has done. You see, in God's sovereignty, God, even now, and and, and sometimes people struggle with this. You know, sometimes people say, if God is all powerful, you know, and perfect, why, why doesn't He just rid the world of all evil and all sin and all that? Well, He will. One day He will, and this is the day we're reading about here in Revelation. But in God's sovereignty right now, He is permitting evil men and evil angels and demons to do their worst. But... Now here in Revelation 19, the time has come for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and He is going to bring judgment on all those who have turned their back on God and blasphemed Him. You know, some people think that God is unfair and that God is unjustified, especially when they read books like Revelation, they, all they do is focus on, you know, the justice of God and the wrath of God and judgment. And we need to remember, and, and we're reminded right here in heaven, verse 2, for true and righteous are His judgments. These, these judgments are true, they're righteous, they're right, God is fair, God is just, He's not being unfair, it's what they deserve for their blasphemies against God and their treatment against God's people and, and martyring them and all the things that we've read about that have taken place. And you know, people, some people today don't believe what the scriptures teach. They water it down, they, they, they twist it around, they don't want to talk about it. But you know, that's one of the things that, that we're known for here at the Orchard Church is we teach the Bible, we let the Word of God do the talking, we don't add to it, we don't take from it, we just, we, we say, thus saith the Lord, this is what God says. And there's a lot of people today, it's becoming popular, this belief that there's no such thing as any eternal judgment, that nobody's going to face any eternal judgment. And some people just, they talk about eternal life, eternal blessings with God, but no eternal judgment. Yet we've seen several times here in the book of Revelation, there will be an eternal judgment. That's real and biblical. That the Bible talks about. And one of those places is right here. Because notice in verse 3. And again they said hallelujah. Her smoke her, of her judgment rises how long? Forever and ever. That, that sounds pretty eternal to me. And that's the judgment that's come, come up on uh, Satan and the false prophet. And, and the beast, the antichrist. And those who've taken the mark of the beast and followed her. You know I've said this many times. We all have eternal life. You know, sometimes as Christians, we think we're the only ones that have eternal life. Everyone, every human being will have eternal life. The question is where? We we, we have a soul that God gave us that will live forever in one of two places. And we read about that, and we should take that seriously. But we should balance the judgment of God and His justice... And this hallelujah with the scriptures and what they say about the mercy and the love and the grace of God. And not forget that Second Peter two nine says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the truth. And we've seen throughout the scriptures God has given opportunity after opportunity for that to take place. Many opportunities in Revelation. I, I don't know about you guys. But, you know, I've read Revelation before, I've studied it a little bit. This is the first time I've ever taught Revelation to a group of people, to a church. So it's caused me to dig in like never before. And the one thing that I think I've, one of the things that I've learned in the book of Revelation that I didn't realize... Before I started studying this this time is the mercy and grace of God just keeps showing up in this book over and over and over and over again I mean just keeps giving people chance after chance after chance I mean he sends two witnesses. He sends 144,000 He sends an angel through the sky with a banner of the gospel his own voice calls from heaven in chapter 18 verse 4 We saw it last week telling the people you know don't take the mark don't get involved with the antichrist but if people won't listen to the mercy and the love and the grace of God, then they have to face the wrath and the judgment of God. But God gives them a choice. But let's not forget Ezekiel 33:11 that says God, that uh, He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their ways. And so even though there's the Alleluia of judgment, people don't have to face that if they choose to turn to God. So we see the Alleluia of salvation, the Alleluia of judgment, and then we see another reason that heaven is worshiping. The Alleluia of agreement, verse 4 and 5. The Alleluia of agreement. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down. And they worshipped God who sat on the throne saying. What's before the Hallelujah? Amen. Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying. Praise our God all you his servants. And those who fear him both small and great. Now Amen. I, I told the first service. I said okay if you guys don't under- If you don't know what Alleluia means. You probably don't know what Amen means. Amen means so be it. It's true, and they're saying, Amen, it's true, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, they're worshiping and praising God, and notice the agreement, all of heaven, the 24 elders, which is a picture we learned about earlier in Revelation of the church, it's almost like the praise starts with the Old Testament saints. And then the people who come out of the tribulation that do accept Christ and, and don't take the mark of the beast and were martyred, they start praising. And now the 24 elders in the church starts praising. And then there's other creatures, the four creatures. Remember we learned about them in Revelation chapter 4. They're flying around the throne and they're saying, holy, 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 day and night. And now they're praising. And it's like, it's like, it's this, this crescendo of praise that begins to build. Next time you hear, Handel's Messiah, think about that. This is the scene in heaven as all of heaven is worshiping and celebrating and rejoicing over our incredible God and heaven and what he has done. And then that leads to the final hallelujah, the hallelujah of celebration. This is a celebration. This is a party in heaven, y'all. This is incredible. Verse 6, And I heard as it were, and John's going to try to... Do his best to describe this sound, this incredible worship and praise in heaven. He said, I heard the sound, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent means all-powerful. Our all-powerful God, at this point in Revelation 19, I mean all the judgments have taken place and he is in charge and he is ruling and he is reigning and he is victorious and all of heaven gets louder and louder and louder and just erupts in this incredible sound of worship and praise to God and and celebrates with God. And I want you again to be reminded of the context of what we're reading about here. I know this may be difficult for some of you if you've just jumped in the last few weeks or if this is your first week, but for those of you that have been here from Revelation chapter 1 to verse 18, it's all been building to this and to next week when we see the return of the king. I mean, it's all been preparing for this huge celebration because the final judgments upon Babylon... And that evil system have taken place, and Satan's system, and it's fallen, and God is victorious at this point, and that's what's causing this celebration in heaven. And John says it's so loud; he says it's like many waters. Now, I've never been to Niagara Falls. That's somewhere I probably need to go. How many guys have been to Niagara Falls? And they tell me if you go there and you stand, you know, close to the water, I mean, it's just so loud—the roar, the power, the 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 majesty of that. That's I think kind of what. What uh, John here is trying to describe That kind of powerful sound of worship Is happening in heaven And, and you know, I, um, I haven't been to Niagara Falls But I, I spent quite a bit of time in Missouri A lot of our family is, is from that area and, and I used to go fishing on a pretty, pretty well known lake there Called Table Rock Lake If you've ever been to Branson, Missouri Um, Table Rock Lake is right there, and that's where I used to do fishing all the time. I used to fish with my buddies, go bass fishing in tournaments. And and, uh, every once in a while they would open the Table Rock Dam, and I think we have a picture of this. And it's one of the larger dams in the United States, and there's ten floodgates. And sometimes they would open all ten of those if they get a lot of rain. And we get a chance to go down there. I mean, just hear the rush of this water just pouring over. And it was really an incredible scene. And to be there and feel the power of that. Now, I may not know a lot about Niagara Falls and that power. But I do know a lot about thunderings. And John says here, he tries to describe this scene in heaven, the sound of worship, like, like mighty thunder. I know a lot about mighty thunder. Because you guys know, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We got some mighty thunder in Oklahoma. I mean, we, we know something about thunder. And uh, I remember as a kid, you know, all the thunderstorms and, that would come through. And, and I, I'm a little strange, I know. I actually get excited when thunderstorms happen. And, and, and I, now I live in Colorado, and they don't happen nearly as frequently. And I, I just got to be honest with you guys. The thunderstorms that happen in Denver, they are wimps compared to the thunderstorms that happen in the Midwest. I'm just telling you, I can't remember a thunderstorm in denver like the thunderstorms in oklahoma and and they weren't just like every once in a while they were like three or four times a week and i actually get excited when it gets like thunderstorms here i'm like oh maybe it's a good one and i'm like that's it are you kidding me come on man and you know i mean there's just that power there's just something about it the the feel of that you know the roar of that and these are the images that john is using to describe this thunderous celebration this this power of mighty waters and what it might feel like, what it's going to feel like for Christians to be there. And, and, and maybe this, I could give you just a little glimpse of what it, I mean this is just a little, it doesn't even do it justice, but just a little bit of, of maybe what it feels like. You, you guys know I'm a big Rockies fan, and, and I love the Rockies, and, and Shelly and I, our family, we, we like going to the games as many as we can uh, go to. And people say sometimes, well you can see it better on TV, and, and that's true. You, you can see it better on TV, but you can't feel it better on TV. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, when you're at the game and somebody hits a home run or they take the lead and something big happens and I mean it's just, you know, ah! you know, I, I th- that's why I go to the game. I, I and It's been a lot more exciting the last week or so than it was, you know, in the month of May. But I mean, it's exciting to be there and feel that, that celebration and that enthusiasm and that victory and that crowd and, and you know... That doesn't even compare to what it's going to be like in heaven. When this takes place, I mean it only makes sense that John would describe what he hears as this amazing loud celebration. Because here's the deal you all. You've heard people say, you've heard me say, you know when things get tough and when it seems like evil is winning and Satan has the upper hand, you know have heart because we've read the back of the book and we win. You've heard that right? This is it right here. This is what we're reading about. This is when God wins, and the people of God win, and we're victorious, and we're part of this incredible outburst celebration of worship and praise. And you know what's amazing? As you think about this, what John heard was many of us. We're in this crowd, this 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 scene of worship and celebration, as as it just erupts over the victory of our God, and and that we're on His side, and that we're we're a part of this. You know, um, I I must admit I'm not. I love football, college and pro. I've really gotten into baseball. Uh, I've never really been into professional basketball. I mean, if you are, that's cool. I, I just, I have a, had a hard, hard time getting, in, uh, you know, excited about the NBA. I do like the Nuggets, and I root for them, you know, when they're doing well and stuff. But, um, you know, it doesn't matter, which is sometimes. And, uh, but, it, you know, it never really matters. I, I love sports. And anytime it's the playoffs, you know, and it's like the finals, I have a hard time not checking in, you know? So even this last NBA finals, you know, like I, we were kind of checking in, we were on vacation and you know, we didn't always watch the whole game and we'd like try to catch the last of the game, but man, when it went to like you know, game six and the Mavs had a chance to to win and beat the Heat, I, mean, I think the only people that are rooting for the Heat are the people from Miami, I mean that's it. I think the rest of the world was cheering for, for uh, the Mavs, and I was too, and I had to watch game six, because I, I love watching the end of one of those celebrations, when the team, whoever it is, even if it's not my team, I just love watching that celebration at the end, and thinking, man, that's what it's going to be like in heaven, when we celebrate at the ultimate victory with the God of this universe, and we're going to be there, and it's going to be incredible, and I, I, I mean, it was just cool watching the Mavs win, and or LeBron, man, we gotta pray for him or something. And you know, you know I, I heard uh, some good advice this last week. Uh, somebody told me they said, uh, Don't ask LeBron James uh, change for a dollar. Because if you ask change for a dollar, you're only gonna get 75 cents back because he doesn't have a fourth quarter. Just, just throwing that out there. So just th- throwing that out there for what it's worth. Hopefully, we don't have any Miami fans here today. But we've got this celebration, this heavenly worship takes place because of the final judgment of God, Babylon has fallen, God is victorious, he's all powerful. But then we see the the culmination of the celebration is because of the second thing that happens in heaven, and that's a heavenly wedding. We move from a heaven the heavenly worship leads right into a heavenly wedding in verse 7. And you got to check this out. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and celebrate and give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Here we see, some of you have heard of this before, the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you've heard of that, say yes. This is the scene. This is where it takes place. And and the scriptures tell us in several places that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and spiritually the church, the believers, are the bride of Christ. And we one day will be presented to Jesus Christ, our groom, and in heaven we'll be united with him in marriage forever and ever for all eternity. Not just 50 years or 100 years, but forever forever. And and as the bride of Christ, if you're a believer here today, whether you realize it or not, and this includes you too, guys. You're like, oh, no bride. Yes, you are. Spiritually, you're a bride. And Jesus Christ is the groom, and we're going to be married to Him in heaven. Right now, we're engaged to Him. And, And this is the scene being described, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, to fully understand this scene and all the pictures that John is using here. It would help us a lot to understand some things about the first century Jewish wedding that John had in mind when he gives us these pictures. And, you're, and man, hang with me, you're going to like this. This is cool stuff. Some of this stuff I didn't even know until I studied it out this week. There are four phases of a Jewish wedding back in the first century. And somebody asked me after the first service, now, do they all still do it this way today? Some of it they do, some of it they don't. It depends on if they're, you know, Orthodox Jews or, you know, how traditional they are. Some of it they do, and, and, and some of it they, they choose not to. But in the f- first century, when John is describing a wedding, he had these things in mind. The four phases of a Jewish wedding. The first one you have in your notes is letter A, the origination. Where the, the wedding begins to originate. In the scriptures, it's called the betrothal. The Jews would call it the Kedushin. We would call it today the engagement. The engagement period. Okay, the The bride and groom-to-be are engaged, betrothed. Now, the engagement in the first century Jewish culture was much different than engagements today. Because back then, when they were engaged, when they were betrothed to one another, it was just as legally binding of a contract as if they were already married. It was that sure of a thing. And the only way to break the betrothal, the engagement, was by a a writing of divorcement. Just like as if they were married. Now you guys, some of you will remember this in the Christmas story. Because remember Mary and Joseph were betrothed. They were engaged, but they weren't yet married. She becomes pregnant. Joseph finds out about it. And it says, he didn't realize the plan of God yet, and that God had you know, was the one behind this and not some other man, and it said that Joseph, even though they were just engaged and betrothed, he was willing to put her away, divorce her, but he loved her enough to do it privately until the angel came to him and said, no, what is conceived is of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus. And then, of course, they got married. But it was was that big of a deal that he would have had to legally divorce her to end the betrothal or the engagement. And during this period of time, like today, usually something was given uh, to promise and guarantee that, that the betrothal would turn into a wedding and that there would be a marriage. And it was usually, like today, a ring that was given. And the betrothal was usually arranged, as you know, by the parents, Usually when the children were very young, you know, we want our little Johnny to marry your little Susie because we really like her and think she's cute and we like your family. And they would arrange that back then in the first century. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, and I have a teenage daughter and son, I'm not so sure this is a bad idea. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. I mean, I'm not so sure that we shouldn't get back to that just a little bit and all the teenagers are like, oh, dad, you know, come on, you know, but uh, you know, it's something to think about. As a matter of fact, I'm preparing applications right now and be taking interviews with your children. So if you're interested, let me know. But um, you know, all of this, this betrothal engagement period is an incredible picture of the Christian life and our engagement to Christ. Because the Bible tells us that we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That God the Father already predetermined that through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, we could be married to Him and be a child of God. And He already knew, He knew we were going to choose Him before we chose Him. He knew. Now we have to make a choice. We have to make a decision by faith. But He knows what we're going to decide. He's God, Right? And he has a part in that. And the Bible says that you can't even be saved unless the Holy Spirit gives you an invitation. And he gives you that invitation. And he prearranges our relationship with him. Because, you know, we didn't go seeking for God. He came seeking for us. That's what the Bible says. And the, the picture of this engagement is also very true in the fact that just as a ring was given as a guarantee that the wedding would take place, we are given a ring when we accept Christ, a guarantee That our salvation is secure and that the marriage will take place. We read we read about it in Ephesians chapter one, verse thirteen. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's when you accepted Christ, in whom also having believed you were what's the next word? Sealed. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know what the engagement ring of the Christian life is? It's the Holy Spirit. That is that what God. The moment we accept Christ, He gives us the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He seals us by the Holy Spirit—a promise that we are eternally secure. That's why we believe in the eternal security of the believer here at the Orchard Church. And then He goes on to say in verse 14, "Who is the what? Do you have that. Thank you. The guarantee of our inheritance, not the maybe, not the hope so, not the possibly. The say it, church." Guarantee God says, When you by faith accept me, I put my Holy Spirit in you. That is a seal and a guarantee you're engaged and we will be married one day in heaven. The guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. That means until Jesus Christ comes to get us for the wedding. We all have the Spirit of God when we accept Christ. And you know, we, we don't get some of the Spirit when we accept Christ. We get all the Spirit, we're completely sealed. It's a guarantee. You see, once we're saved, it's not about getting more of the Spirit. It's about the Spirit getting more of for more of us, more of me. So we see the origination, the first phase, and the picture of the marriage to Christ. Then the second phase of the Jewish wedding was this, the preparation. The bride-to-be would start preparing her wedding dress with her mom. She would make it. And she'd start the preparations knowing the wedding was coming. Sometime soon the groom now check this out the groom in the first century would go back to his father's house where he grew up See he didn't have the money and the means to go You know go buy his own house or build his own house So he would go back to his father's house and he would add a room with his dad working together They would add a room onto the house for him and his new bride to live in until they could have enough money and get a house of their own and sometimes they would just stay in that house and the families would continue and so he would, he would build this place and he would prepare this place at his father's house. Now let me say this, teenagers, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Amen, parents? We're planning to downsize one of these days. We don't want it to come too quick. But you know what this is a biblical picture of? Some of you guys are already getting this, and I see you shaking your head. You can follow this, what this is a picture of. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples before he leaves. With his believers. And you remember what he said in John 14? In my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And what did he say? I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'll get you. I'll receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that cool? You know what Jesus has been doing? You know what our bridegroom has been doing for the last 2,000 years in his Father's house in heaven? Preparing a place for you and me to dwell with him for all eternity. We see the origination, we see the preparation, and then we see the presentation in the Jewish wedding, which is a picture of the Christian marriage to Christ. The presentation. The bride and her bridesmaids would be ready. They'd be making the gown, they'd be getting ready, everything's ready. They'd be ready to be presented to the groom when he comes back to get them. But here's the deal. In the Jewish first century, they never knew for sure when the groom was going to come back. They, they, they'd have ideas, and they knew it was getting close, and they would hear, but they never knew for sure. He didn't say, like, I'm going to come on this day and this hour. He, they just knew it was getting close, so they had to always be ready, and they had to always be prepared. Wow, I wonder what that's a picture of. The rapture of the church. We know that our groom, Jesus Christ, is coming to get his bride. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be this month. We don't know when, but we know it's coming soon. And we need to be ready. And since Jesus may come at any day, we need to be ready every day. The groom then would show up at the bride's house, and he would show up not alone. He would show up with the groomsmen and the rest of the wedding party. Then the bride would be presented to him, and to the groom, and then he would take the bride, the bridesmaids, and they would have this big processional through the streets all the way back to the father's house that he had prepared. And then, number four, the fourth phase, it's in your notes, the celebration would begin. After the groom would go get his bride, the whole wedding party, back at the father's house, there would be a celebration. Now here is something I learned this week that I found very interesting. Tradition would tell us that the Jewish wedding, when they would, and and, and many of them still do this to this day. Once the groom goes and gets the bride and the bridesmaids and the wedding party, and they get back to the father's house, there's this feast that takes place and and a celebration. And guess how many days it lasts? Seven days. Interesting. Seven days of celebration and feast and then usually right at the end of that seven days there would be the wedding that would take place. I mean, look at what we've been studying in Revelation. The biblical picture. The rapture takes place of the church. The bride is taken. The church is taken with the groom. We go to heaven. We're there for seven years. We're celebrating. We're in a feast. We're victorious. While on earth the judgment and the tribulation is taking place and we're a part of this feast and all this celebration. You know, I have, um, I've done quite a few weddings, I've got a couple of them in our church coming up uh, this summer, and uh, you know, one of the things I've noticed at every wedding is everybody's waiting for that moment when the bride walks to that back door. I mean, she's adorned in her wedding gown, and I mean, the, the groom is waiting for that, everybody there is waiting for that, and everybody stands and all eyes are on the bride. And they're on her dress, because most people haven't seen the dress, you know, it's kind of secretive and, and groom's not supposed to see it and all that. And, and so everybody's wanting to see her, how beautiful she is, her dress, and all those things. And, and there's a lot made out of the bride's dress. Um, I catch my wife and my daughter, not me, watching a show uh, lately on TLC. Um, say yes to the dress. Some of you ladies watch that, okay? some of you guys watch that, come see me afterward. Um, Say yes to the dress and it's basically about this, you know, uh, boutique wedding dress place and, and, and all these ladies are getting married and they go in and how they pick out their dress and they fight over it and it's crazy stuff. And, and it's all about the dress. Kate Middleton's dress, they tell us, was uh, $350,000 dollars was her dress. But this this whole show is, you know, about picking out the right dress, buying the right dress, you know, Kate Middleton, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars she spent on her dress. But that's not how it was done in the first century. You know, they didn't go down to the boutique and purchase the wedding gown. They made their wedding gowns by hand, stitch by stitch, with their moms. That's how they prepared their wedding gown, waiting for the groom to come get them for the wedding. Now that may seem really old-fashioned today, and who would do that? But Christians, can I tell you something? Did you know that as believers, every one of us, spiritually speaking, is preparing our wedding garments for our wedding every day we get up? We are preparing our wedding garments for our marriage to Jesus Christ. You say, where do you get that from? Well look at verse 8, and to her, the her is the bride of Christ, Christians, the church, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of believers. Your wedding garment is being prepared, John says, by what, church? Your righteous acts. Your righteous acts. The right things you do for God every day as a believer, spiritually speaking, is preparing your wedding garment to be presented your life to Christ. Now let me explain this. So there's no doctrinal confusion here. This is not saying that we are saved and become Christians by our righteous acts. Because we know that it is not our righteous acts that save us. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Isaiah that our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. We are saved by one thing only, faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8.9, you hear us quote this all the time, it says, for by grace you have been saved through your righteous acts? No. You've been saved through what, church? Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's not your righteous acts. It's the gift of God, not of works, not of righteous acts, lest anyone should boast. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, plus nothing. That is something you will hear at the Orchard Church over and over and over and over and over again, because that's what the Bible says, over and over again. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. So what is this righteous acts? Once we are saved, righteous acts don't save us, but once we are saved, now... Through the Spirit of God working in our life, we can produce righteous acts. If that makes sense, say yes. We can now produce righteous acts. L-l-l- let me help you with these two verses that balance this out. John 15, I think it's 5, says this. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branch. Apart from me, you can't do nothing. You can't do anything. You can't produce righteous acts. But once we accept Christ in our life, we have His Spirit in us. You know what Matthew 19:26 says? With God, all things are possible. All things are possible when God works in it through our life. And we, we we often quote, and I often quote, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves as the gift of God. But we seldom go to the next verse. Verse 10. After we've been saved by grace through faith, listen to what the very next verse says, verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, righteous acts, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we have a responsibility once we're saved, To do good works, not to be saved, but because we are saved and we have been saved. Righteous acts are the outward expression of our inward faith. And John is letting us know here that the righteous acts of good works that we do, that Christians do once they're saved, are going to make up the very fabric of our wedding garments when we are presented to Christ. Now, to help you understand this a little further, this is all, I believe, going to culminate in an event called the Judgment Seat of Christ. If you've heard of that before, say yes. The Judgment Seat of Christ. This is a place where Christians will be judged, not on their sins. Those were taken care of at the cross. We're in heaven, we're saved, we're there. But we're going to be judged, we're going to be cleaned up, if you will. And the spots that have gotten on our wedding garment, the blemishes... The wrinkles are going to all be ironed out at the judgment seat of Christ, which will take place after the rapture when we're in heaven. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 5.9. He says, therefore, and he's talking to Christians, to the church in Corinth. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, the righteous acts, according to what he has done, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we will show up and all of the good we've done, the righteous acts that are pleasing to God will remain, all the things that weren't, the Bible says, will be burned up. We won't be burned up, but those bad things will be burned up and we will go into eternity and we'll be ready and prepared like a bride to be presented to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Pure, clean, holy, righteous. You know, in the Jewish culture, in the first century, the the Jewish bride... I was reading some of this and it said that she would have on a white garment. But it wouldn't have any adornment to it. It wouldn't have any jewels or pearls or veil or anything. She would just have this white garment and then she would come out and then her bridesmaids would begin to adorn her and put the jewels on it and the pearls on it and the veil on and maybe a tiara and those things. And to begin to do that, I think that's what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ when we receive our rewards. The bad is going to be gone. the, The wrinkles will be... Ironed out. I got some wrinkles. I'm looking forward to those being gone. Some blemishes. And we're going to be ready to be presented to Jesus Christ as his bride. We're going to be rewarded. You know, as I I studied this this week and I thought about how, how do we make this practical every day, this is what came to my mind. The goal of the Christian life ought to be this. That when we arrive in heaven in our wedding garments, that we've been preparing with our righteous acts, that God doesn't have to do too much cleaning up. That's the goal of Christian life. That there's not too many wrinkles that have to be ironed out and too many blemishes. That there's been more righteous acts done for God than things that weren't done for Him. But as we study this and we look at it and begin to bring it to a close this morning, this answers the question a lot of people ask. What's the church going to do when we get in heaven? We know the first seven years after the rapture, there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be be prepared at the judgment seat of Christ to be presented to Jesus. There's going to be the marriage supper. There's going to be celebration. There's going to be victory. I mean, you all that like to eat a lot, man, it's going to be a seven-year feast. I mean, Golden Corral ain't got nothing on heaven. It's going to be pretty good. I mean, we're going to celebrate and worship with God in this wedding feast for seven years and then be presented to Him. And then in verse 9 it says... Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Now, now here's, here's where some people get confused. When it says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Some people read that and go, oh, that's me. That's the church. I get to be called to that. No, no. You're the bride. The bride doesn't get invited to her own wedding. She invites everybody else. So this is not the bride, this is not the church being invited to the wedding, this is somebody else. You know who I believe this is? It's the Old Testament saints. Because they're not the church, they're not the bride of Christ. Now they're they're in heaven, they're with God and they're God's people, but they're going to be the guests of honor that get invited to the bride of Christ, the wedding with Jesus Christ. The Old Testament believers, those on the other side of the cross, you say, I don't know about that. You making that up? No. Remember John the Baptist? You know, John the Baptist, now we think of him as a New Testament saint, because he's in the New Testament, but remember, he was on the scene before Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died before Jesus, you know, was crucified, I believe it was. And so, John the Baptist, listen to what he said in John three twenty nine. he called himself a friend of the bridegroom. Not the bride, but a friend. He's going to be one of these Old Testament saints that's called to the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now... I, I, I want to just try to close, and, and you guys get this scene in heaven today, and as believers, be excited about this. Um, have any of you, and I don't want to embarrass anybody, but be honest, if anybody here, maybe maybe a young person, you've never been to a wedding? Any, anybody here never been? Okay, I see a kid back there, one on the top. Okay, we had a couple in the first service. Okay, uh, those of you that are getting married soon, would you please invite these people to your wedding? So they, they can say they've been to a wedding and know what we're talking about here. But I want you to imagine this wedding of all eternity. A marriage made in heaven. I mean, the groom is standing there. Jesus Christ. Now ladies, listen, I know when you married your husbands, you thought they were the perfect groom. You've now learned they're not. Jesus is the only perfect groom. There's only one. The groom is standing there, and then in the audience, the guests that have been invited to this heavenly wedding are the Old Testament saints. I mean, there's Abraham. There's Isaac. There's Jacob. You know, there's Moses, there's David, there's Daniel sitting out here ready to watch this wedding. There's Elijah, and there's Sarah, and there's Ruth, and there's Esther, and there's Hannah. All these Old Testament saints, and they are the guests of of honor. They've been invited to this wedding, and here's the best part of all you all. We are the bride at this wedding. The church. We're about to be presented to Christ. Listen. Listen. None of us probably got invited to, the, I, I doubt any of you would have heard of it, got invited to the royal wedding. There were only 2,000 and we weren't one of them, but you know what, i got some great news. You're going to be the bride at the greatest royal wedding of them all. The wedding of all eternity. The marriage to Jesus Christ that's going to take place. What an incredible scene John is describing here in Revelation 19. I mean that just, both services gives me goosebumps. To think about this. And we close this morning. In verse 10. John says. And I fell. I mean John sees this whole scene play out. And then he just falls at his feet. This angel that's giving him the stuff. To worship him. But the angel said to me. See that you don't do that. <laughs> that's not a good idea. My mom used to say that to me all the time. Doug see that you don't do that. He says. I am your fellow servant. This angel says. And your brethren. Who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, let's not forget here. Let's let's cut John some slack. He's 95 years old at this point. He's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And he's there and he's seen all this stuff in Revelation. And all these angels and all these things. And now he's just seen this incredible worship in heaven. He's seen the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I mean, he just falls down and starts worshiping. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that he intentionally is trying to worship an angel. I think he's just overwhelmed with what's going on, but the angel and John let us know some doctrinal truth here. We don't worship angels. We don't worship anybody but God. He's the only one worthy of our worship. Not angels, not saints, not religious leaders. God and God alone. And then it says here at the end of verse 10, the angel reminds him, the, pro- the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, the main theme of prophecy must always be Jesus. In the Old Testament, it was all about Jesus, the Messiah who would come. The first and second time. And in the New Testament, it's all about the Messiah who's going to come back again the second time to get us. All prophecy of Scripture points to Jesus. Any, any other prophecy that doesn't point uh, to Jesus and surround around Him is nothing more than fortune telling. Prophecy, real prophecy, is about the Messiah. It centers on Jesus Christ, which is what the Scriptures are all about. Well, let's remember the title of the book that we're studying. It's not Revelation. It's the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. And the culmination of this will take place next week. You don't want to miss it. This is what I've been waiting for. The second coming of Jesus Christ. The return of the King. That's what this is all about. But as we close this morning, I want you to close with this thought. Every day, you and I, whether we've realized it or not, spiritually speaking, are preparing our wedding garments for heaven. Every day. So my question to you this morning would be uh, these two things. One, do you know That you're engaged to Christ? Do you know you're a Christian? Do you know that you're going to be the bride at this wedding? Do you know you're going to be in heaven? You're going to be a part of this worship? If you're not sure today, you don't know for sure, you know what? i got great news for you today. You can be engaged to Christ today. You can get engaged. You can get the Holy Spirit of promise. You can can be guaranteed you're going to be in heaven. You can be guaranteed you're going to be a part of this celebration. You can be guaranteed you're, you're the bride. And you know, I thought about this in the first service, and I'll say it again. I can't think of a better day to accept Christ than on Father's Day. Because the greatest father you'll ever have is the father of all creation, God. And you know what, he doesn't want to just be a father, he wants to be your father. And you can make that decision today. And for those of you that are here and you are a Christian, you remember the day you got engaged to Christ. You remember the day you accepted him. You remember the day he put his spirit inside of you. From that day till now, whether you realize it or not, you were preparing spiritually your wedding garment, by your righteous acts, or the lack thereof. I hope maybe tomorrow and the next day we'll wake up a little differently going, what am I going to do today to be better prepared for the wedding and for the groom that is coming very soon?